Hello everyone and welcome to the Office Hours podcast. I'm Vincent Chow and today I'm chatting with Dr. Brian Klaas, Fellow in Comparative Politics here at the Department of Government at the LSE. Dr. Klaas, thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So actually I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your background. So you're from the States mm-hmm. and is, that, is it right that you worked on a campaign? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate work, uh, and then I worked in New Zealand for a little while, uh, of all places, and then I went back and I co-managed a campaign for governor uh, in my home state of Minnesota, and then after that, um, after we won that campaign, I decided to work in international politics as opposed to state politics, so I, I, I moved over to the UK and started my PhD at Oxford, and then started working at the LSE, but during the time of my PhD research, I started uh, doing very intense field work around the world where I would go for several months at a time to different countries. And the, the field work uh, yielded the insights that became the first book, effectively. Is that a common path that people from the States, you know, they work on campaigns and then they become an academic? Do you know a lot of people who do that? I don't. Uh, I think it's pretty unusual. I think a lot of people who work in campaigns, especially winning campaigns, typically go into office, right? I mean, so I it could have been a pathway for me to try to work for the governor who I helped elect. Um, but I realized that I was much more interested in, in big questions about democracy and authoritarianism, uh, which at the time were not relevant to the United States um, and now are, which is why I do work on U.S. politics again. Um, so, the, you know, the first book was much more outward looking. So looking at how U.S. foreign policy affects the rest of the world in terms of democracy. The second book was looking at how U.S. democracy is in crisis as a result of long-term trends culminating in the election of Donald Trump and Trump's own uh, authoritarian impulses and behavior. Right. So the two books are definitely very related. And that's something we'll get to in a second. But I actually wanted to ask a little bit more about how you got interested in democracy in the first place. Yeah. So uh, my my mom was... uh, she, she sort of sparked my interest. She um, was unhappy with how the local school district was performing. And one of the beauties of democracy is that if you are unhappy with how something's working, you have the power to change it. And she decided to run for the local school board. So uh, when I was a kid, I remember very well um, her running her campaign. She had this slogan that was um, vote straight A's for Barbara Kloss, uh, A's being you know, the top grade in America. And she has many A's in her name. So uh, she won that election and then served on the school board and became president of the Minnesota School Boards Association eventually. And and so I sort of saw it modeled for me in in, uh, my own house uh, that, you know, political action can create change. And then uh, I started studying political science as an undergraduate and was fascinated by it. So uh, I decided to work in campaigns afterwards. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an odd thing, a campaign. They, you, you're really making it up as you go along. I mean, all the literature and the scholarly you know, treatises on campaigns has all these theories, and you're just sort of day-to-day you're trying not to screw up, and you're trying to make sure that the, the news that covers you is positive. I mean, it, and you make it up as you go along in, in a way that I think people would uh, sort of be horrified to know. But, it's, you, know, but, you, but you, you have a core message, you have core priorities, you have core values that you want to convey to the, the voting public, but you also have to respond rapidly to developments. Um, you know, your opponent attacks you and you have to respond in 10 minutes and you have uh, a whole series of things that can go wrong. So it was a crash course in how politics actually works. And then uh, I wanted to study sort of, you know, the bigger picture of democracy and authoritarianism, which started to really interest me uh, as an undergraduate, and I moved away from it in the campaign. The, the, th- the funny thing about it is, you know, y- you have the same sort of disconnect, I think, with some scholarly literature that's informed by 
people who don't travel to countries they write about, uh, which I think is something that I personally find challenging about the direction of the discipline of political science is that there's an increasing reliance on data, which is good in many ways because we have the tools to answer questions in ways we did not before computerization, et cetera. But it also requires that we end up sort of having a, a broader group of people who are writing about countries or themes or causality uh, without having actually interacted with any of the players they're writing about. And so that's where in, in my PhD, I got a, a very deep appreciation for how important it is to actually go to places, talk to people making decisions. And it was informed by that fact that I thought people who were writing about political campaigns didn't really understand what was happening uh, in the actual campaign because they didn't have access. They hadn't done that work. Um, and I think that sometimes in political science, we have to be a little bit more humble and realize we are on the outside looking in. And, and sometimes we, we do get it a bit wrong for that reason. Right. So in two senses, you kind of immersed yourself in what you're studying now, which is the first sense was that you were actually on a campaign. And second sense is that when you're doing your PhD and you still do, you're traveling a lot to the countries that you're actually studying. And you, you talked about how, um, you know, you're, you, you don't think it's, it's the be maybe the best way to just rely on data in, in the discipline. So the alternative is to, you know, use more qualitative information, as you, as you suggest. Yeah, so I think that there should be mixed methods, basically. I think that you need to draw on the strengths of both types of methods and, and try to minimize the weaknesses of both types. Um, you know, you can get a pretty good sort of vision. To use an analogy, the, the, the data, I think, often can help provide a good picture of what the forest looks like, but it may not understand why any individual tree is falling over or why any tree is growing faster than another. Uh, that's sometimes harder to infer from sort of the forest level analysis. It's not always the case. There's certainly innovative methods that use quantitative data and are, are very effective. But it's just, you know, I, I speak to a variety of people. So my qualitative research, what I do is I go to places uh, around the world from Madagascar, Thailand, Belarus, um, Ivory Coast, uh, Tunisia, etc. And, you know, you, I speak to people. I sp you have to sort of, it, it's hard to do this research because it takes time. You, you spend a month or two in the country trying to sort of network so that you can get access to people who are actually making decisions, whether it's presidents, prime ministers, diplomats, you know, foreign ministers, et cetera. And then also, since I was doing violence, uh, political violence research and election research, I would talk to coup plotters and uh, soldiers and rebel armies, et cetera. And it's hard to get that access. So it is not, that's why it's not more common in political science. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you talk to these people, when you're trying to figure out why a coup happened, it's possible to talk to somebody who was involved in it and say, why did you do that? Now, of course, the problem is they all lie, right? I mean, nobody says I did the coup because I wanted to have power and I was greedy and I wanted more money. But it is possible in speaking to people throughout the political sphere in certain countries to get a better picture of why something happened. And I think if you, if you add that insight that you get from how people are perceiving politics in the world around them in the countries themselves with quantitative methods to try to get a sort of more objective but incomplete view of how politics operates, it ends up being the most accurate depiction possible. And I think what, what I fear a bit is that there's an over-reliance on data to the detriment of everything else. And so and a good example of this is I've had uh, I, one of my favorite stories from my fieldwork is uh, when I was in Zambia and there was a coup plot that was occurring. Um, where the idea was to dispatch a bunch of low-level soldiers to the army commander's house, and they were going to kidnap him and have him 
um, basically announce the coup on the radio. They figured if the army commander says a coup's in progress, everybody will go along with it and they'll, they'll take power. Um, but the army commander saw the soldiers coming and ran out the back of his house and tried to climb over the wall. And like in this film, I mean, it's like, it's almost like just like a cartoon to imagine this, but he's climbing over and the soldiers grab his trouser leg and he manages to slip over the fence and goes to state house and alerts the Zambian government of the coup plot. And they quickly quash the coup. Right. And the soldiers say, okay, we tried our best. They go into the army commander's refrigerator and find Namibian beer. And they start drinking because they figure, well, we didn't get the guy, but at least we'll drink. Right. And so when you try to, there's two things about that that I think are really important for understanding political science. One is that in every quantitative data set, that coup plot is a zero as opposed to a one because there's a binary measure of whether a coup succeeded or failed. It almost succeeded. I mean, they were a few seconds away from getting this army commander to announce the plot at gunpoint, and it probably would have overthrown a very fragile government. The second aspect is how do you model behavior in which a soldier decides to stop a coup plot because there's good beer in the refrigerator, right? And so that's where I think when you have this sort of condensation of data into ones and zeros very often, you end up losing so much detail and nuance um, that in actual political science research, you have to be very careful about that to make sure that you're not sort of oversimplifying things. I think anyone who's read your first book, The Despot's Accomplice, would see that you have so many examples that you use from, and these are countries that you've actually traveled to and people you've interviewed. And so one country that I'm very interested in talking about is Tunisia. Mm -hmm. So this is a country that is of mutual interest to both of us. So you've traveled there quite a lot mm -hmm. and you've actually interviewed members of the current regime who were actually exiled to London mm -hmm. during the dictatorship of Ben Ali. So do you want to talk a little about, about the country? Sure. So Tunisia, you know, it's, it's often to a slightly lesser extent these days because it, it does have problems, um, but it, it's often sort of viewed as the poster child for the Arab Spring Democratic Project, right? The one country where an authoritarian regime was overthrown in 2011 and democracy took its place. Uh, it's a flawed democracy that's moving in, in you know, fits and starts and it has problems still with corruption and there's still economic uncertainty, etc. But it's an amazing transformation story that in a couple years you had a, a straight up dictator uh, replaced by a, a you know, mostly democratic government. Um, now, the, 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 the interviews that I did that I think are really, were really important, and this, these are ones I think you're alluding to in the book, um, I was trying to figure out why effectively they were able to survive uh, when every other country in the Arab Spring sort of, you know, went back to authoritarianism. You had in Egypt, for example, Mohamed Morsi gets elected and then is overthrown in a coup very quickly. In Tunisia, democracy has been durable. Um, so I interviewed a guy named Saeed Frajani, who I think is a really impressive person. Um, and he was tortured under Ben Ali's regime. Um, he, he plotted his own coup attempt back in the 1980s and was uncovered. Uh, and, and then was uh, tortured quite severely, went into a coma, had you know, terrible back problems, etc. And eventually escaped to London um, by training himself to be able to walk 50 meters at a time without wincing. So he went to raise suspicion at the airport um, and traveled under one of his friend's passports. So because he had been banned from leaving the country. So he escaped to London and then spent uh, you know, many years in exile in London until 2011. And he returned to Tunisia. And one of the things that I think is the most important development in that entire story of Tunisia's uh, post-Arab Spring growth is they had a bill that was proposed by people from the uh, Islamist parties or, or, or Muslim-affiliated parties in Tunisia 
um, of varying, you know, there, there's some moderates in the party, there's some that are, were more extreme at the time. And some of the more extreme elements said that they should purge anyone who is affiliated with anything related to the former regime from politics. And, you know, the problem is that that meant anybody who had power, money, and know-how, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's what happened in Iraq in 2003, it's what happened in Egypt and also in Libya, was they, they committed these purges. Now, on the one hand, it's deeply satisfying and understandable you'd want to purge an authoritarian government if you're trying to build a democracy. Uh, but Tunisia did something spectacular, which is that they, um, Saeed Frijani convinced his fellow partisan uh, members to abstain from the vote. So he, he knew that they could not vote in favor of incorporating the people who had been involved in their torture into the regime. But he also thought, okay, maybe you can at least just not vote to, to ban them. And so the bill didn't pass. And it's amazing because in Libya, a very similar bill passed and it precipitated the, the spiral into violence. Um, in Tunisia, they managed to find a way for people who had been tortured by the former regime to work with people who were torturing them. Uh, and, and that was an amazing thing because that's, you know, at the heart of democracy is if you're willing to play by the new rules of the game and you're willing to commit to democratic principles, as long as that's the case, then hopefully you can solve problems by compromise. And that's what Tunisia did, despite the fact that they have incredibly, incredibly deep divisions uh, in the society from the authoritarian era. And the reason I actually really want to talk to you today is because I, I get this feeling that a lot of young people don't actually share your your um, love or your passion for democracy. And so I think one of the statistics that out there is that people were born in the 1930s, three and four of them say that democracy is essential. And then people born in the 1980s, only one in four say that. And I don't even need the statistic to tell me that because I, I interact with a lot of young people here at LSE and I get that impression as well. And so maybe they would respond to what you just talked about in Tunisia and say that if you look at the other Arab Spring countries, you have basically three civil wars going on and you've got two other countries that where nothing has really happened. So I just want to ask you, what, why is democracy worth fighting for? What, what's its value? Very good question. So to, first to start, start with the Arab Spring, I mean, I think, so the premise of your question is the, the totally normal premise of every question about the Arab Spring, but I think it's 100% backwards, which is that the reason the violence happened is not because of democracy, it's because of a lack of democracy. So you had, you know, these societies that were oppressed for decades by ruthless dictators, and then the uprising ended up unveiling the fact that the, the only thing holding the country together was uh, authoritarian rule. It was going to blow apart at some point anyway. Um, and, and the question is, what do we do to try to make sure that never happens again? In Tunisia, you know, you have a, a mechanism to solve problems now that doesn't involve violence. And, and so I think that there is a really core aspect of democracy that is, we find a way to work through problems without resorting to political violence. That's the, that's the, one of the core principles of, of democratic rule. Now, in terms of generational divides, this is something that really is depressing and it's worrying to me. Um, and I think, frankly, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the big ones is that a lot of people who live in democracies have not seen the horrors of authoritarian rule. And many people who live in authoritarian countries live in soft authoritarian countries where they're not constantly oppressed in extremely visceral ways. The economy is doing okay. The problem is, you know, there's a lot of people uh, around the world who suffer massively under authoritarian uh, rule, and they're practically invisible in our discourse. I mean, if you go, as I have, to a lot of these places and meet with dissidents who have been tortured for simply saying, I want to run for office or for saying, I disagree with the government, 
or families of people who have been killed by the government. Um, you know, there, there's there's just so many of those political horrors, in addition to the fact that most authoritarian countries are much more like the Eritreas or Democratic Republic of Congos of the world and not like the Chinas and Singapores of the world, right? So when you actually think of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of authoritarian versus democracy, uh, authoritarian rule versus democracy, you're looking at, on average, a democracy is a functional well, uh, you know, well-performing economy. Typically, uh, you know, they're they're the hubs of innovation and growth and prosperity. And the average authoritarian country is not like that. And I think the the thought experiment I always give people is I say, imagine you're you know you've got uh, yourself in the womb and you can be born. You can choose to be born into an authoritarian country or a democracy, but you don't know which one. You would be mad to pick authoritarianism because the odds are much greater in that you know choice of, of various countries that you're going to end up in, uh, in in Eritrea or Democratic Republic of Congo than in uh, you know a place like Singapore. So um, to me, I think it's it's important that people understand that there's a whole world of authoritarianism, which is the majority of rule in the world now, um, that is vicious and brutal and destroys the life chances uh, of billions of people. And, and I hope that people understand that democracy, with all its flaws, is still superior to uh, the, the, the authoritarian regimes that brutalize their citizens and really um, create horrible outcomes for, for many, many people in the world. Part of the rationale that a lot of people have is that it's because we're living in this post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan world. So do you think that the anti-war movement is partly responsible for this kind of democratic decline in the people's thinking, in especially in the West? So I think that the Iraq and Afghanistan war, and particularly the Iraq, slightly less so Afghanistan, but I think both of them did a disservice to democratization when they were pitched to the Western public as a democratizing campaign. So I think the war in Afghanistan, for example, was a legitimate response to September 11th. When it became a, a democratizing war um, and they conflated those two objectives, it alienated a lot of people who thought, okay, look, spreading democracy doesn't work. Now, of course, in the book, I argue that spreading democracy with violence does not work, and I oppose it, and I do not think it's a good idea to use armies to try to democratize countries. But I think that that being conflated with the idea that we should not promote democracy more generally is, is terribly flawed logic. Just because it doesn't work to promote it at the barrel of a gun doesn't mean it doesn't work to promote it. And I think that as much as possible, Western governments basically have... There's no neutrality in this, right? I mean, I think people say you should have non-interventionism in the West. Well, I say non-interventionism is a form of intervention because if the West does nothing in an authoritarian country, the authoritarian regime will survive because they survive absent any sort of provocation or pressure from an outside group. And they're already going to get support from authoritarian regimes around the world, particularly China and Russia, who have major abilities to prop up regimes that they like. Um, for their own self-interest, whether it's infrastructure projects or, or buying oil resources or strategic gains, etc. And so to me, you know, it's, it's one of these things where if the West just withdraws its efforts from promoting democracy around the world, which I'm, I'm very worried is happening under, under Trump's leadership, for example, uh, the world's going to become more authoritarian. And, you know, over the long term, that is not a good recipe for innovation and change and prosperity. And so I think that the question is how we do this. Obviously not war. But, you know, the U.S. government and, and the British government and, and all Western governments, when they see a rigged election, they should, they should condemn it. When they see uh, mass atrocities in Myanmar, they should condemn it. And they should have teeth to their condemnations, not just words, but actual consequences. And at some point, 
the West does have an obligation, in my opinion, to hold leaders in the rest of the world accountable who abuse their citizens and prey on them and to actually ensure that they think twice before doing that. Because what I can tell you from interviewing prime ministers and presidents in other countries in the world, particularly countries that are less strategically important than, say, the Egypts of the world or the, or the Pakistans or Indias, is that they think about what the West is going to do. They think, can I jail this journalist? Well, is it, is it going to provoke bad media attention? Is it going to provoke a condemnation or a loss of aid? They really think about that. And so if we stop uh, treating these as things that we should actually pay attention to and condemn, well, it's just going to be free reign for all of the dictators and despots around the world who would love to just jail all the journalists who criticize them and kill all the opposition leaders who try to challenge them. So to my, to my mind, if the West doesn't perform that role, nobody will. And, and we're going to go back into you know, the pre-1990s era of much more authoritarianism uh, everywhere. Right. So that would include countries like Saudi Arabia as well, right? Well, so Saudi Arabia, I think, should get condemned much more. Saudi Arabia, you know, is geostrategically important to the West for a variety of reasons, whether it's you know security or oil. Um, but yeah, I think that there should be much more pressure on that regime. And I do not think that over the long run, it is in the West's interest to be allied with a brutal monarchy that, you know, that beheads people for uh, calling for democracy or trying to hold protests. And at some point, we have to think about, you know, what values our countries stand for in the West. Um, and, and to my mind, uh, it's not the values that Saudi Arabia holds. So, you know, and, and I think there's a, a serious cost that people discount in cozying up to a regime like that in the sense that they do not share Western values in terms of things like extremism, which for a long time they were uh, at least complicit in, in spreading. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a serious geopolitical cost to the short-termism that tends to dominate international relations where you think like, being in, you know, in the good graces of Saudi Arabia right now might be good. Well, it might not be good in 10 years. And, and at some point, you know, the, the paradox of democracy in one way with foreign policy is that because politicians forming democratic foreign policy in Western countries have to think about re-election, they have a built-in incentive to think about the next, you know, one to four years and not the next 20. And I think that that would be something where as a, as a cultural shift, I would hope that voters would start to think about, are politicians catering to me in a way that thinks about beyond the next election? Not just what are they going to do for me now, but what are they going to do for our country to position ourselves so that we are prosperous in 20 years, not just in two years. And, and unfortunately, uh, that's as much the fault as the voting public as it is the politicians, because politicians are just responding to what voters want to hear. Um, and so that's one of the major challenges for democracy in the 21st century, where many of these problems like climate change or uh, trying to solve this problem of authoritarianism or dealing with conflict in places like Syria requires long-term thinking that just simply has not been uh, part of the discourse in democratic countries in the West for far too long. I think this is a great transition to our, my final question, which is, what, so what can young people do today? So short of, you know, calling for military interventions and, you know, hawkish foreign policies, what can young people actually do if they do take your argument seriously that we should promote democracy around the world? Yeah, so I mean, the easiest one is the most obvious, which is to vote. Uh, and I'm, you know, people who are listening to a podcast about politics probably are already politically engaged. So I'm preaching to the choir to an extent, but it's important to also have conversations with friends who are less politically motivated to ensure that they vote. Because, you know, I mean, I can tell you from working on a political campaign, it's a totally rational thing that campaigns do. And it's a totally rational thing that every politician does. They assess the number of people that are likely to vote from different demographic groups. And then they try to pander to those groups. And, 
you know, young people very often have lower voting rates. It's not always the case. There's outliers, et cetera. But on, on average, young people vote much less than older people. And that's why you have policy that caters to older people at the expense of young people. Um, and it's very simple to change that if everybody voted. Um, but it's, it's that, you know, I mean, it's a easier said than done in terms of actual organizing, but it is, I think there's a, there's a part of democracy that's gotten taken for granted, especially through the nineties where there was prosperity and into the two thousands where people were alienated, but not galvanized to do as much. Um, and that is that, you know, it requires being a social thing more than anything. There's a, there's a requirement to be a citizen that's not just at the ballot box. And that means talking to people about politics. It means that if you have that friend who is not politically engaged or who may care about the same issues that you do, but doesn't take the time to devote any time to it or to vote, encourage them, right? Because this is the way things change. If, if everyone who's listening to this podcast convinces themselves not just to vote, but also to talk to 10 friends and say, I'm going to get you to vote, and then those people convince other people to vote. This is how grassroots change happens. And I think, you know, one of the really inspiring things that I've seen, on, on the one hand, around the world, you see these horrors of authoritarianism. On the other hand, you know, Tunisia did it, right? I mean, they, they had the constraints of a dictatorship on them. They were facing torture. Uh, you know, the military could have very easily fired upon them for protests. And they said, you know what, we're going to make the country we want to make. And, you know, it's not perfect. But it's a massive improvement. And so I think, you know, to compare that to the comparatively minor problems that exist in the West, which are still important, like inequality and sustainability and all sorts of things that young people care about, we have the power to do it. And so I just say, you know, that's that's the onus that's placed on every citizen is to make sure they're doing their part, not just to to vote, but also to try to foster a culture of political engagement among their peers. Right. So I just want to end with some recommendation. So is there a book or a video that you'd recommend our listeners go to if they're interested in knowing more about this topic? Sure. I mean, obviously I'm biased that I like my books, but uh, the ones that I would actually suggest that are not mine are, um, there's a book uh, that's called How Democracies Die, which I think is a very important book. Uh, it's by uh, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablad from Harvard. And what they're looking at is, is their, their argument is basically that Democracy is generally robust in the West. There's a lot of institutional strength to Western Europe and American democracy, but it's not, it's not God-given. It's not this thing that just has descended upon us from heaven and we'll always have it. And so, you know, what they're trying to do is a historical analysis of how some of the trends that exist in the West today uh, are, are echoes of history where you have had erosion of democracy and, and dissent into at least broken democracy or, or actual authoritarianism. I think the places to worry about this the most are obviously, uh, you know, the Eastern European countries like Hungary and to a lesser extent Poland and then also the United States. But there are really tr troubling polarization signs, uh, division and also a lot of disengagement that's happening in Western Europe and, and in um, other established democracies. And so I just encourage people to be aware of the threats and also think about how they can be part of the solution to ensure that books like that cannot be written, right? I mean, I, I would love to be able to write a book that says, here's how we fixed it, right? That's the retrospective, that's the, the, the shows that we, we've solved all these problems, as opposed to trying to identify them and, and talk about potential solutions. But 
Right, right now, I'm rather pessimistic about the state of democracy in the immediate term. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm pessimistic about the state of democracy globally in the long term. I'm still very optimistic that people everywhere want a voice in decisions that affect their lives and that they will continue to fight for that voice. And I hope that people listening to the podcast do the same. Right. And of course, I would follow up with that just by recommending definitely your two books, The Despot's Accomplice and The Despot's Apprentice. But I would also recommend your recent TEDx talk at... Um, Wandsworth, is that right? Yes, TEDx Wandsworth. Yeah, TEDx Wandsworth, where you talked a little bit about the things you've talked about today, but you also had a five-point action plan at the end for right. people to vote and also some other things they could do. That's right. If you want to find it, it's How to Save Democracy. It's on YouTube, so uh, take a look. Right. We'll provide links in the, in the description. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the podcast.